Have a seat. I neglected to mention during the announcements, I just want to say this real quick. Uh, on the bottom of our bulletins is a connect card, okay? We want everybody to fill one of those out, especially if you're a guest with us. Uh, we want to just get a little bit of information so that we can send you a thank you for coming, okay? And on that connect card, it's an opportunity for you to put prayer requests, for you to put questions about anything going on at Coastal or something of the sermon. Uh, it's just an opportunity for us to get connected to you, okay? So please fill out that connect card and drop it in the basket on your way out. Well, this morning, we are going to be talking about Psalm 145. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Psalm 145. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a chair around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God. As we are approaching the season of Thanksgiving, we're going to be spending the next couple of weeks looking at a few psalms. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 145, which is titled, A Psalm of Praise. And as we're getting started, I want to ask us all a very basic question. Why are we here? I mean, why do we come to church on Sunday mornings? I bet if I were to give out a survey and you guys would have filled it out on the way in, we probably would have gotten a variety of different answers. And the reason I know that is because that happened. Pew Research Center conducted a massive survey of churchgoers about the reason why they go to church on Sunday mornings. And these were the top 10 answers that they got. To become closer to God, so their children will have a moral foundation, to become a better person, for comfort in times of trouble, they find the sermons valuable, to be a part of a faith community, to continue their family's religious traditions, they feel obligated to go, I feel like those were the husbands, um, to meet new people or to socialize, or to please their family, partner, or spouse. And so some of those reasons are silly, a lot of them are really good, but I think that all of them in one way or another miss the point. They miss the fundamental reason why we gather together on Sunday mornings, and it's this. We gather together every Sunday morning on the Lord's Day to worship. And what is worship? Unfortunately, I think we've got a misunderstanding about worship sometimes. We can treat it like it's a musical genre, as if worship is what the band just finished doing. We'll say things like, we worship, and then we listen to the sermon. And while worship certainly includes music, it's so much bigger than that. The word worship comes from an older word that literally means worth-ship. To worship something is to display that it is valuable, to display that it is worthy. It is an expression of worth. So I'm worshiping God when I'm communicating with my heart and with my expression that God is infinitely valuable. So I believe that the, the fundamental why, reason why we're here is to worship God to worship him because he is worthy. And by the way, that's why we call our Sunday morning services here at Coastal Corporate Worship. We're worshiping God and we're doing it corporately. We're doing it together. Well, this all leads to a second question in my mind. If the reason why we're here is to worship, then why do we worship God? Might sound kind of crazy, but really think about it. Why do we worship God? Why do we worship our God rather than another God? And that's, why, that's where Psalm 145 comes in. I think that this psalm is just bursting at the seams with reasons to worship, to worship God. And the interesting thing about this psalm, it's called an acrostic. What that means is this psalm, each verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you'll see these things that will say A is for apple, B is for banana, C is for cucumber, so on and so forth. This psalm is kind of like that, but with the Hebrew alphabet. So what this psalm is doing, if you will, is giving us reasons A through Z to praise God. So it's just overflowing with reasons to praise God, and this is how it does it. It does it by theology. 
This psalm gives us reasons to praise God by teaching us who he is, what he's like, and what he has done. The principle that we learn here is that we cannot worship God rightly if we do not know him truly. I love this quote by A.W. Tozer. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and no man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. What we believe about God directly impacts how we will worship him. Doctrine always controls devotion. Theology always controls doxology. If we are to praise God rightly, we must know him truly. And yet a lot of people act as if they can have a healthy relationship with God without knowing anything about him. You know, it saddens me. I'll see Christians today act as if theology is something that's to be left to the professionals. That's to be left to the pastors, the nerds, the, the seminary professors. And so we don't really need to know this stuff. But listen, all the word theology means is knowledge about God. It's just knowledge about who God is, about what he has done. And if that's the case, I'm convinced that it's for everyone. It's for every believer. But I hear people say this. I've heard this phrase a hundred times. I don't need theology. I just need to love Jesus. Well, listen, let's try this one with your marriage. Let's say I take my wife out on a hot date. You know, maybe it's, it's half-price appetizers night at Applebee's or something. <laughs> you know, I take her out on a hot date. I'm just kidding. Um, I would do better than that. No, I wouldn't. Anyways, <laughs> I take her out on a date, and she get, we get into talking, and she's like, oh, she's, tell, she's opening up. She's telling me about her childhood. She's telling me about her hopes. She's telling me about her dreams, about her fears, the most intimate knowledge about herself. And I said, babe, just stop right there. That's just head knowledge. I don't, I don't need to know that stuff. That's not important. I just need to love you. How loved and valued would she feel in that moment? Not at all. You see, to love someone necessarily includes knowing about them. And you see, when we treat theology as if it's not important, what we're doing to God is exactly like what I just used in that illustration. The fact of the matter is that we can't worship God rightly if we don't know him truly. And Psalm 145 encourages us to praise God by teaching us about who he is. So what I'd like to do this morning is open up Psalm 145 together and let the great theologian King David teach us about who God is as reasons to worship him, as reasons to praise him. And one more thing before we jump in. I know that there are a lot of people who have come in this morning and you've been beat up this week by the world. You're feeling weary, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling afraid, you're feeling angry. And listen, I am convinced that we have no greater need in those moments than a big vision of God. What we need when we are stressed, when we are frustrated, is an anchor for our souls. And there is no greater anchor than the character of God. So with this in mind, let's read Psalm 145 together. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. 
They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. You are the holy God. You are merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And this morning, Lord, our only aim is to behold your glory and by beholding, be transformed into your likeness. Lord, would you give us a deeper understanding of who you are? Lord, not so that we can be puffed up with pride, but so that we would fall on our faces and worship you. Lord, we love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first reason that we're given to praise God in our psalm is this. We praise God for his greatness. And what does it mean to be great? That's a word that it gets used so often that it starts to lose its meaning. We'll say that pizza is great. We'll say that your cat is great. And by the way, that's not true. Your dog might be great. Your cat's not great. (laughs) We might say that my football team is great. And listen, if you're a fan of my San Francisco 49ers this year, then that's absolutely true. But when scripture says that God is great, it means something entirely different. It means that God is in a category all to himself. There isn't anything that we can compare God to. Every analogy will always fall short. God is the creator and everything else that exists is a creature. There's no third option. You're either the creator or you're a creature. Everything that exists other than God is finite, yet God is infinite. And no wonder David bursts into praise in verse three, and he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But I love the next, of the, the next part of the verse when David says, your greatness is unsearchable. That's our next point this morning. God's greatness is unsearchable. That means it's beyond our ability to comprehend. We can't even start to wrap our minds around God. And I love the book of Isaiah. Personally, it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible and definitely in the Old Testament because I can't think of another part of Scripture that more powerfully and vividly opens up the character and the nature of God. And in particular, when I get to chapter 40 of Isaiah, I start to feel really, really small. And here's why. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Later on in this chapter, Isaiah wrote, Do you not know or do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is infinitely more than we could ever begin to comprehend. As I've heard Pastor David say many times, we can know God truly, but we will never know him fully, not now and not in eternity. All of the nations on earth are like a drop of water in a bucket, like a speck of dust on a scale, or like a small insect when compared to the greatness of God. And we need to take some time to let that truth sink in and to feel small. 
Because we can spend so much time being anxious about things like politics. You know, I don't know if you noticed, we have an election coming up next year. And a lot of people are going to get really spun up and really anxious. What's going to happen if this person gets elected? What's going to happen? Oh, my goodness. And listen, I'm not saying that that stuff's not important. But what I am saying is that compared to our God, every leader that has ever existed put together is like a speck of dust. And if Scripture says that if God is for us, if this God is on our side, Why are we afraid of people? The greatness of our God is unsearchable. We can't even start to get our minds around him. And that's the point. We're not supposed to. I often tell people, the minute you think you have God figured out, you're probably talking about an idol, not this God. When we think about the greatness of God, we are supposed to feel confused. We're supposed to feel small and inadequate. And the minute we start to lose that sense of awe and wonder is the minute that our worship starts to fade. The minute we lose that sense of smallness before the throne of God is the minute that our worship becomes a ritual. I think it's good for us to be constantly reminded of the greatness of God and to just sit and to feel small, to feel really small. So what I'd like to do this morning is spend just one minute, just the next minute of our time together, I want to jump into the deep end of the theological pool, and I want us to feel small, and I want us to feel overwhelmed, because that's good for us. We need to come face to face with this great God so that we will fall on our faces before him. So consider these truths. God never began to exist in one point in time. God is. That is a two-word sentence that has baffled philosophers for millennia. God is. Not God was, not God will be, not God will become at some point in time. God simply is. He is self-existing. God has no cause, and yet God is the cause of everything else that exists. God is not limited by anything. God's not limited by a lack of information. He knows everything. He has always known everything, and he knows everything that will happen. This means that God never learns anything. God has never learned a single thing. He already knew it. God never gets worried. God never gets stressed out. God never gets frustrated. He knows it all. God is not restricted by space. God is everywhere, in all places, at all times, in the fullness of his being. That means he's not partially here and partially in China and partially on Jupiter. It means he's everywhere, all of him, all the time. God's not restricted by time. Time itself is God's creation. God created time and he transcends time. So let's apply this one. How do you know that God is going to be there with you tomorrow? How do you know that God knows the future and he's going to be there with you? Because he's already there. Let that one sink in. The greatness of our God is unsearchable. We can't even begin. Just one minute of thinking about it starts to blow our minds. And what should our response be Well, Charles Spurgeon wrote in commenting on verse three, the best adoration of the unsearchable is to own him to be so and close the eyes in reverence before the excessive light of his glory. Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out and therefore his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. 
We worship God for his greatness, but we also worship God for his character. We worship God for his character. David goes on to say that this God is gracious and merciful, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What's interesting to me about this verse is that David is actually quoting from Exodus, an earlier part in the Old Testament. A lot of you probably know the story about the golden calf, right? God had rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they built this golden calf, this idol, and began to worship it while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law. And God, in his mercy and grace, chose not to wipe out the people of Israel, but to forgive them, though there was judgment. But shortly after all of this happened, Moses asked God a very big question. He says, God, show me your glory. God said, Moses, you know that nobody can see my face and live. But God told Moses that he would pass by and he would proclaim his goodness before him. He would let him see his his backward parts. And now listen, we know from the New Testament that God is a spirit, so he doesn't literally have a body. So it's not like he's literally showing him his backward parts. What this is a manifestation of the glory of God. But nevertheless, just one momentary glimpse through the cleft of a rock was enough to leave Moses' face shining so bright he had to wear a veil to keep all the rest of the Israelites from going blind. And as God passed before Moses, this is what God said in Exodus 34. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses knew this to be true firsthand. He had just seen God's mercy and not wiping out his people who had just turned their backs on him. This passage for Israel was the peak manifestation of the character of God. It reveals what God is like. And that's why David quotes it in this psalm. And you see, we've already considered the greatness of God, but that greatness would not be a good thing. In fact, it would be terrifying if we weren't also assured of God's character. A God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present, and yet evil, would be absolutely horrifying. But we're assured that this great and unsearchable God is also the gracious and merciful Father who is full of mercy toward his children. God's not only great, God's also good. And the God who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness is the God who has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ as the one who is full of grace and truth. Well, as we continue in the psalm, we see yet another reason why we gather together to praise God, and it's this. We praise God for his kingdom. Let's keep going in Psalm 145, starting in verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And I'd like to make two points about God's kingdom, and the first is this. God's kingdom is universal. This means that there is not a square inch in the universe that God is not totally and completely sovereign over. God never sleeps. God never takes a day off from governing the universe and governing our lives. You know the song that we teach to our kids. He's got the whole world. We can do better than that, okay? Let's try again. (laughs) He's got the whole world. 
that's great theology. That's true. God is sovereign. That means total, complete, and absolute authority. And listen, there's no such thing as kind of sovereign. God is totally sovereign over every molecule of existence. And that's comforting to me. I don't know about you. Because listen, I like to live in this fairy tale where I pretend like I'm in control of my own life. I don't know about you. I've got this illusion in my mind that I am really in control. But sometimes God just loves to snatch that away from us, doesn't he? We are not in control. God is in control. And that's comforting to me because he is the unsearchable, gracious, and merciful Lord of all things. Man, we're so often living with fear and anxiety about what's happening in our lives, what's happening in our culture, what's happening in the world, because all of it is totally uncertain to us. But Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who died for you is the one who holds the world in his hands. This world is held up by nail-scarred hands. That should be an encouragement to you this morning. So no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in our country, in our culture, in the whole world, he's got it all in his hands. His kingdom is universal, and he is working out his plan for history step by step. But second, God's kingdom is eternal. Verse 13 says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Not only is God's kingdom universal, it doesn't end. As we just got done singing in that wonderful song, God will reign forever and ever and ever. God is never gonna get voted out of office. He's not gonna get impeached. He didn't ask for our permission to start being God, and he doesn't need our permission to continue governing the universe and governing our lives. God has reigned from the foundation of the earth, and he will reign forever and ever. He is the universal and the eternal sovereign. And we can't even get our heads around that. I don't know about you, but there is no more confusing concept to me than the concept of eternity, because we live in a universe that is defined by time. Every moment of our lives, even I can't even say a, a sentence without referencing time. I said the word moment. Every moment of our lives is dominated by time. And yet God's kingdom is eternal. And I know there are some things in our experience that, that might seem to go on forever, but everything eventually comes to an end. It might seem like traffic at the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel goes on forever. Some mornings it does. It might seem like the wait time at the DMV is going to go on forever but I promise that's going to come, in, come to an end. It might seem, Louie, like Tom Brady's career is going to go on forever. <laughs> but one day that's eventually going to come to an end when he's in his 60s or something out there with a walker trying to throw the ball down the field. But listen, though all of those things will eventually come to an end, God's kingdom will never end. It is an everlasting kingdom. That means 100 billion, trillion, gazillion, billion light years from now, God's going to be in the exact same place he is right now which is seated on his throne, reigning and ruling. We worship an eternal king. Well, we've seen that God is great and that he is good. We have seen that he's our king. But what is God's kingdom like? How does God manifest his power and his authority as king? And why is he worthy of our worship? Well, that's what we'll see in our final two points this morning. And the first is this. We praise God for his provision 
Let's continue in Psalm 145, starting in verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. We see in this text that God is good to all. God is kind and he's benevolent toward his creatures. I love the way the psalm puts it. It says, the eyes of all look to you for food in due season. God provides for all of creation by his providence. He gives all of us what we need every single day. This teaches that God's actively involved in our world. We don't serve the God of the deists, the God who created everything. He put some abstract laws of nature into place, and then he hopped on the couch. He flipped on the TV, and he's just sitting there watching, seeing how this thing is going to work out. No, God is not only the creator of everything, but he's the moment-by-moment sustainer of everything. In fact, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus Christ is right now upholding the universe by the word of his power. Colossians says that in Christ, all things hold together. The God who made us is also moment by moment sustaining him. Paul said that in him we live and we move and we have our being. This provision of God is often referred to as the doctrine of common grace. Common grace refers to God's grace in providing a sinful world everything that we need to survive, like food and water and shelter and marriage and families and so on and so forth. Now, common grace doesn't save us. Only the gospel does that. But common grace is God's grace to all creation, whether or not they've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. It's called grace because we don't deserve it. We're living in rebellion against the creator. So anything better than hell is better than what we deserve. It's grace. And we see common grace in the teachings of Jesus. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's grace is so good that he even provides for his enemies. Man, people who only deserve God's wrath get to enjoy sunrises. They get to watch sports. They get to have a hot cup of coffee in the morning. They get to have restful sleep, so on and so forth. These are things that we take for granted all the time but they are gifts of God's grace toward us that we most certainly do not deserve. And the amazing truth is that God gives all of those things not just to his children, but to the whole world. So even the most devoted atheist who has given their life to blaspheming God can only do that because God is providing them with the air in their lungs to do it. God's grace is incredible and his patience is more than we can even imagine. We should never take God's common grace for granted. But this text shows us what God's provision is like, and it's this. God's generous. God is generous. It says that God provides for us open-handedly. He provides for us richly everything that we need. God's not stingy or cheap in what he gives to us. How many of you guys have watched The Office, TV show The Office? Okay, a pretty good amount. Good, so you should know this story. Um, My wife and I are huge fans of The Office, and there's that one episode where Dwight K. Schrute becomes the landlord of the office building, and Dwight's trying to save money, so he starts being really cheap. He charges $8 for the bagels in the office coffee shop. He installed motion sensors and timers on all of the lights, so everybody would be sitting there working, and, and all the lights would turn out, and they'd have to start going like this to get the lights to come back on. The best part is he even had a machine that separated the ply on the toilet paper, so he would buy a single ply, 
put this in the machine, and he did get half-ply toilet paper. I'm not even sure how that's possible. And eventually, you know, Pam finds out that he's violating all these building codes, and, you know, so she makes him fix it all. But the point is that God doesn't provide for us like that. God's not stingy. He's not giving us half-ply. God is generous to us, especially here in America, y'all. We know this. David wrote all of these things that God opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing in a world before indoor plumbing, air conditioning, heat, refrigeration, modern medicine, iPhones. God provides for us richly. And we often so, we, we so often fail to recognize that. We, we fail to be grateful. That's what this Thanksgiving season's all about, recognizing how generous God has been to us and being grateful. Well, as amazing as God's common grace to us is, that's not the only kind of grace that our God displays that's worthy of our worship and adoration. We praise God for his saving grace. So let's go on in verse 17. David wrote, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. So God is good to all of creation and he loves everything that he has made, but there is a special There is a particular love and a particular care for those who call on him. The difference between God's common grace and God's saving grace is God's common grace is his kindness to everyone. And yet his saving grace is the salvation that he provides to Jesus Christ alone. And perhaps the most fundamental reason that we praise God is this. We praise God because he is our savior. God is our savior. David says that God is near to all who call on them. He hears their cry and he saves them. He preserves those who love him. And while those words are remarkably true, David didn't even know the half of it yet. We've got to get to the right side of the book to see the whole story because God will indeed call on the, save those who call on the name of the Lord. But, but what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that this great, unsearchable, mighty, and sovereign king became one of us in Jesus Christ. That's what we're getting ready to celebrate at Christmas. The king of all creation took upon a human nature in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God-man. He is truly God, and he is truly man. He lived a perfect life, fully obeying the law of God in a way that you and I couldn't. But then he died on the cross bearing the punishment for sin that you and I deserved. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and couldn't and then died the death that we deserved to die in our place. But that's not the end of the story because three days later, Jesus bodily rose from the dead, proving that he really was who he said he was. 
and proving that his work on the cross was sufficient and complete for all time. And how do we receive the benefits of that? You know, that's a great story. It's even heartwarming. But how does that make a difference in my life? Well, Romans 10 teaches us three words about how we respond to the gospel. First, we confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that he's the king of the world and he's worthy of our worship and worthy of our obedience. And confessing Jesus as Lord includes repentance. Because if Jesus is Lord, it means that he gets to decide how I live my life, not me. It means that he's the boss. It means that he's in charge. But next, we need to believe in our hearts the core facts of the gospel, specifically in this verse, that God raised Jesus from the dead physically and bodily, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he's coming again for us. Because being a Christian, it's more than just knowing facts about the gospel, but it's certainly not less than that. We cannot be saved apart from faith in the Jesus of scripture, not the Jesus of our own making. And finally, we need to call on the name of the Lord. And this calling includes personal commitment. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe in the facts of the gospel. And then I call on him to save me personally and to bring me into his family. We need to trust in Jesus as a person, not just as a a set of ideas. And if you're here this morning and you don't have this, you don't have this saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you more about this. Grab me after the service. Grab Pastor David. Grab one of our prayer team members. Grab Brian leading worship. We would love to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But for the believers in this room, this gospel that I just articulated ought to be our central motivation for worship. I hope and pray that we never get tired of the gospel because so often as Christians, we can hear that message so many times And it can start to become repetitive. It can start to become boring. You know, Tim Keller once said that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A through Z. It's everything. We're saved by the gospel and we're transformed by a deeper understanding of and appreciation of the gospel. So often we'll think that we can get the gospel down and we can file it away in our memory and we can just pull it out when we need to for evangelism but the gospel is everything. There's nothing bigger and better than the gospel. There's nothing we get to move on to beyond the gospel. The gospel is everything, church. It's my prayer that we would never get bored of it. Nothing else comes close. And all of this leads to our final point this morning. We will praise God forever. Verse 21 concludes Psalm 145 by saying, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Worship is not temporary and worship is not provisional. Worship will last forever. Only an infinite God is worthy of infinite worship and our God is infinitely worthy of more than we have to give. We will spend an eternity worshiping the king of all creation who sacrificed himself to rescue his enemies. And I want to make you guys a promise this morning. You're not going to get bored. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I can sing forever. Well, you won't be singing forever, but you will be worshiping forever. And here's the deal. I can promise you're not going to get bored because when you take your last breath and you first open up your eyes in eternity and you first step foot in heaven, the first time your eyes see the lamb standing as if he had been slain, you're not going to be able to stay on your feet. And then 
You're not going to say, when is this going to be over? You're going to say, we don't have enough time. We will worship God forever and ever, and eternity won't even seem long enough because he is infinitely worthy and he is infinitely glorious. So to wrap up this morning, why are we here? We are here to worship God. And why do we worship God? Because he is our creator, he is our king, and he is our savior. And why does worship matter? Well, worship matters because that's the reason why we exist. Church, we are worshipers by nature. Scripture teaches that we're all gonna worship something. It's not a matter of um, do I worship or not. It's a matter of who am I going to worship. The fundamental problem the gospel addresses is that all of us have worshiped something else other than God. We're all idolaters. Romans 1 says that we have worshiped and served the creature other than the creator who is blessed forever. And one of the things that the gospel does is transform us into true worshipers of the true and living God. So it's my hope that Coastal Community Church will take the worship of God so seriously. It's my hope that we will be committed to knowing God deeply in our theology so that we will worship him passionately in our doxology. John MacArthur once said that our worship will not go higher than our theology. We must know him. And it is my hope that we will be a church that's committed to holding up the gospel of Jesus Christ as the reason why we worship. So let me leave you with just a couple practical points this morning. Let's commit with David in this psalm to worship God every day. He says, every day I will bless your name. You don't need to wait until Sunday morning to worship God, even though we come together every week and that is a special and a unique thing. You can worship God every day of the week, anywhere you are. You don't even need to be in a church building because Jesus says that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Find the things in your life that stir your affections for Christ. Spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time reading Christian books and fellowship, worship music, journaling, whatever it is that stirs your affections for Christ, saturate your life with it. Let's commit to knowing God more deeply. Let's not be satisfied with a superficial understanding of God. Let's not be satisfied with getting our theology from bumper stickers and Facebook memes. Church, God wrote us a book. God wrote us a book. Let's know this book and let's know our God more deeply. Let's drink deeply at the fountain of God's word. Let's read good books by good theologians that have gone before us and have wrestled with this book and have given us the fruits of their labor. If I could give you one recommendation to start, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Write that down. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. That book other than scripture, is the book that God has used in an incredible way in my life, and it gave me a hunger, a passion to know this God more. And if you don't like reading, I get it. A lot of people aren't readers. That's okay. But if you have a commute, find some good podcasts. Find some good sermons. Do you know, if you just have an iPhone, you can go to seminary on your phone for free. There are apps you can download with full classes of information about God that you can download. Redeem your commute. I love sports radio as much as the next guy, but use that time to learn more about God. We have more access to knowledge about God than Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Edwards, every great theologian in church history. We just don't use it. Let's take advantage. Let's use our iPhones for something good for a change, knowing God. And finally, let's commit to letting our praise of God change the way that we live. Let's let our worship propel us on to holiness. Let's let our worship be the motivation to share about Christ with our friends who don't know him, 
Because when you're a true worshiper and you love this God so much and you're devoting your life to him, you're gonna start saying, this is really good. They gotta know about this God. They've got to know him. Let's let every act of worship and obedience to Christ be an act of praise, an expression of praise. It's my hope and prayer that this local church will devote every moment of our lives as an act of praise to our King. Well, the worship team is going to come back now, and we're going to close this morning by praising this great God. And let's close in prayer as they come. Oh, Lord, you are great. There's none like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We stand in awe of your greatness and your goodness. We stand in awe of the reality that you have made yourself known to us in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for our sins and rose from the dead and is Lord of all creation. Lord, would you help us to live lives that are marked by praising you? Would you give us a passion to know you more in our minds and in our hearts and let that be the motivation to serve you with our hands? Oh Lord, we love you. We dedicate our lives and everything that we are to you. In Jesus' name we pray.